All right, uh, this morning, I'll be covering where Pastor Ron left off last week, <clears throat> which was the end of chapter 8. Uh, and we're going to try to move a bit quickly uh, so that we can get to chapter 10. Uh, that's the goal for today, so we'll see um, how that goes. So if you have your Bibles, I would ask you to turn to Judges chapter 8. And we're going to begin in verse 33. And I'm going to read uh, Judges 33 through Judges 9.57. So it's a long passage. Um, so if you can persevere and stay with me, it'll be beneficial. Judges 8.33. <clears throat> says, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and hoarded after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the, from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them, and the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ear of all the leaders of Shechem, which is, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on, behalf, in, on his behalf and in the ears of all the leaders of Shittim. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubal. Seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest of, of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself. For all the leaders of Shechem came together, <clears throat> all Beth Milo and, I'm sorry, yeah, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim, and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You, come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? And all the trees said to the bramble, You come reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubal and his house and have done to him and his deeds deserve, as his deeds deserve, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, 
king over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative? If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubal and with his house to this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. <coughs> but if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. <clears throat> and Jotham, Jotham, Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of, of Jerubal might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told to Abimelech, <clears throat> and Gaal, the son of Abed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him, and they went out into the field and gathered the grapes for their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Abed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubal? And is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamer, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that, this, would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. <clears throat> when Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Abed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Abed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore... Go by night, you and the people who are, in, who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the, the son of Abed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebel said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains of men. Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the, of the diviners, Oak. And Zebel said to him, Where is your mouth now? You who said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are you not these people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal said, and Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aruma, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field and Abimelech was told. He told his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of his city. So he rose against them and killed them. 
Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and kindled them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of el Barith. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to the mountain, I'm sorry, to, the mount, to Mount Zalmon, and he, all the, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulders. And he said to the men who were with him, What you've seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed Abimelech, following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper milestone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads and upon them, came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. Let's breathe. Okay. <clears throat> so, continuing on from where we ended last week, uh, if you remember, Midian was given over under the hands of Israel through the rule of Gideon. But as you have already suspected, once the judge passes away, what happens? Anybody remember what happens after one of the judges passes, passes away? Israel goes back to his old ways. That's right. Israel goes back to what we have seen them do over and over again throughout the book, forgetting, despising, and rejecting again the Lord who delivered them from the hands of their enemies. Now, in the previous cycles of Israel's disobedience, God, out of his mercy, has always raised up a leader to save them from their oppression, from their oppression caused by their own sinfulness. However, in this case, we see a leader rising in position by his own way, right? His name is Abimelech. We see here in the beginning, uh, in verses 2 through 6, Abimelech's smooth political sway, right? In trying to encourage the men of Shechem to see why he would be the most likely candidate to rule over the people rather than to have any of Gideon's 70 other sons try to rule over the people, now, in addition to that, he appeals to his blood ties to the men of Shechem, the fact that he's family with them, since his mother was from Shechem. And sure enough, that would and did uh, convince them that he would be the best choice to be the next king, to be the next ruler. Now, it becomes evident that he 
was the bad choice when we see that his first action as a newly appointed king is to hire ruthless thugs to kill all of Jerubbabel's sons, which was Gideon's sons, which were 70 of his brothers, except one who escaped. Now the one son who escaped, Jotham, runs to warn the people of Sheshem of the horrific decision that they made of making Abimelech king and ruler. He shares with them an illustration, right, with the people to show how foolish and deadly this decision of making Abimelech the ruler was. He wants the people to see how foolish and dangerous it is to accept a clearly unqualified leader. So pretty much verses 1 through 21 emphasizes the problem of bad leadership and its long-term effects. We can even go back to Gideon in the previous book, or in the previous chapter. If only Gideon had not had a concubine in Shechem, right, you see that in verse 31 of chapter 8, things would have been different. But he did, he had a concubine. And Abimelech, the son of that concubine, was born and becomes trouble for Israel. Now, when Jotham, one of the brothers that escaped, when he gave his illustration to the people of Shechem, he wasn't warning them of the problem of kingship, right? He didn't have a problem with someone being a king, but rather the character of the king. In other words, Jotham's, Jotham's theme is the foolishness of, accept, of accepting a clearly unqualified leader. Uh, and to be quite frank, right, people till this day have a strange tendency of accepting bad leadership. Uh, and this is something that continues to baffle me, but I guess it speaks to the effects of sin in our thinking and the way that we choose um, leaderships. Uh, here's an example of, of modern tendencies of accepting bad leadership. I want to read something from William Shire, who was an American journalist and a war correspondent. And he was known for writing a book called The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich. It was a history of, of Nazi Germany. Uh, and it's been quoted and cited by scholars for more than 50 years. Um, specifically, he wrote a book called The Nightmare Years, uh, 1930 to 1940. And in this book, he, he writes things that he witnessed that was leading into World War II. Um, and in this book, he writes what he saw in September 1934 at the Nazi party celebration in Nuremberg. Uh, and this is something that I think is, is relevant to what I'm speaking about, that strange tendency to just accept the wrong kind of leadership. And this is what he says in his book, and I quote, the words he uttered, he's speaking about Hitler, Okay? The words he uttered, the thoughts he expressed often seemed to me ridiculous. But that week in Nuremberg, I began to comprehend that it did not matter so much of what he said, but how he said it. This is Hitler. Hitler's communication with his audiences was uncanny. He established a report almost immediately and, and, deepened, the, and, and deepened and intensified it as he went on speaking, holding them completely in his spell. This is with his speech. In such a state, it seemed to me that easily believe, uh, I'm sorry, in such a state, it seemed to me they easily believed anything he said, even the most foolish nonsense. Over the years, as I listened to the scores of Hitler's major speeches, I would pause in my own mind to exclaim, what utter rubbish, what brazen lies. Then I would look around at the audience 
his German listeners were lapping up every word as, as if it was the utter truth, end quote. Now, I don't doubt that history will see more of this, right? People just soaking up whatever people say and just believing that they're completely qualified people just, just because of the, uh, the way that they speak and the way that they present themselves. Um, and I don't doubt that we'll see this more, not only in our nation, but even with the people of God, right? We've seen false teachers rise up. Same thing going on. This reminds me of what Jesus said in John 5, 43. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. You see, why, why the, the Messiah who they've been speaking about and proclaiming and waiting for his, his arrival, they don't receive him, yet they receive some other clown. Now, before I go on, I think it's important to make a few distinctions about leadership. Even though we are coming into um, election season, right? We're, as a country, we're coming into this time where we have to choose and vote on who will be our next president. Uh, which actually should be a time of prayer for our nation as we select our new president. But we as Christians must be careful not to lose focus on which is first spiritually important which is most important, which is the leading of God's people on earth. That's important. It's important for Israel, or it was important for Israel at the time, and it's important for the church today, right, when we choose our leadership. This is not to say that our earthly elections aren't important. In fact, they're very important. And as a church, again, we ought to be in prayer, seeking wisdom on how to deal with the elections. But this is to say that as the people of God, we have a primary task, which is the task commanded for the church, which is the spread of the, go- spread of the gospel, spread of the, of, of the kingdom of God. So in regards to leaders, we as a church must see the importance of God raising up leaders to lead his people in the Great Commission. Now, as we think on how to apply this to us today, we can be thankful that God has not left us to our own devices in trying to identify what the church's qualified leader looks like. And unlike the people of Shechem, we don't have to depend on the, the appeals of our flesh, right? We don't look at somebody and make judgments um, on who's, who are the great leaders according to, oh, they have a great smile. They present themselves in such a delightful way. We have the Bible. We have scripture. 1 Timothy 3, 2 to 13 uh, talks about the qualifications of elders and deacons. And Titus 1, 5, 9. And these are the qualifications that we can always look to. Uh, to, to know who are the qualified men to lead his church. God cares for and loves his people and protects and guides them through these qualifications. Um, so we have the standard in the word. Now, moving along in the passage, um, lastly, we see the process of judgment fall on both Abimelech and the people of Shechem in verses 22 through 57. Uh, first we see in, t- in verse 23, it says, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And uh, as Pastor Ron talked about last week in his lesson, God is faithful to his promises. In this case, he is faithful to fulfill the word that was spoken by Jotham against Abimelech and the men of Shechem. God will not be mocked. He has stirred up one evil against another Right, the destroyer of Israel and himself destroyed uh, together. So Abimelech um, and Shechem, God put uh, God 
God allowed them to destroy themselves, right? This is what, this is how God uh, was able to, um, you know, destroy what was destroying Israel, uh, in a sense. It says, Abimelech, the destroyer of Israel, is himself destroyed, and certainly in a most humiliating way. We see in verse 52. Uh, can someone read this passage, 52 to 54? Thank you. Yeah, so here we see Abimelech's skull being crushed by a woman who threw a stone. And he quickly finds another way to go. He, he doesn't want his legacy to be um, destroyed or have an embarrassing legacy um, by, by people knowing that a woman killed him. And so uh, he calls on someone else to, to, to kill him and take him out. But either way, God, through the enemy, destroyed the enemy of Israel Right? So God destroyed a destroyer of his people, in other words. And God allowed that to, to happen. Now, as bloody and gory as that may be, what we also see here in this story is that God's kindness is not letting his people become completely wiped out as they truly deserve. Right? So God is handling that which is destroying his people. He's able to take care of that. And through that, you see the grace of God and his kindness in allowing Israel to still be preserved. He does not give them over fully to the wicked leaders like Abimelech, but saves them out of their hands. Uh, and it's a reminder to us that God keeps his people even in the worst possible conditions from within. And finally, it reminds us again that there is a king who rightly alone bears that title, who rules over all other so-called kings, and that's the king, our Lord Jesus Christ, who rules, and the way that he rules is compassionately and lovingly always protecting his own, even at the cost of his own life. One who came not to be served, like Abimelech, <clears throat> but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One who was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to save his weak and help his people. That's our king, right? Jesus Christ. And ultimately, our eyes are to be fixed on him. So when we see these kings and we see these rulers, um, it, it ought to be a pointer of the great ruler, right? The great king who, uh, again, serves and rules compassionately and lovingly and protects his people um, till the end. So uh, ending with chapter 9, this leads us into chapter 10. Um, so we're in good timing. Um, and in chapter 10, if you look in your Bibles, uh, here we see Israel enter into a whole new cycle. And on your handout, uh, it's point number two that we'll be talking about, the kindness and the severity of God. So let's go ahead and read uh, chapter 10. We're only going to get to verse 16. So can someone read uh, from the PowerPoint? After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, man of Ishakar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. 
and after after him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel twenty-two years, and he had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys, and they had thirty cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried at Kamon. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Amorites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and from the Amalekites and the Maonites, Maonites, oppressed you and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of your hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go, cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Thank you, Farz. So, <clears throat> beginning with verses 1 through 5. We, we sort of see hints of God's goodness by still providing judges for Israel to save them through the years that came after Abimelech died. Uh, we see what is to be the sixth judge of Israel, a man of Issachar by the name of Tola. We see that in verse 1. And after his death arose uh, Jair, the Gileadite. Little is to be said about these judges. In fact, they're considered minor judges not because they had no significant effect on the history of Israel, but simply because not much is said about them. However, even though they're minor judges, we, not, we must not overlook God's grace and mercy for providing these leaders for Israel, and he did so for a total of 45 years as they, as they ruled. <clears throat> but we read once again in verse 6 that once that last judge died, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and serve the Asheroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. <clears throat> the scriptures say that they forsook the Lord, and they did not serve him. By now, this repeated act of rebellion from Israel ought to make you both frustrated, <laughs> and yet convicted at the same time. Okay, that's how we ought to feel every time we see this cycle. You have to feel frustrated, like, man, again, you guys did it again. We also ought to feel convicted at the same time. Number one, frustrated. 
frustrated because God has repeatedly shown mercy to Israel and yet they rebelled. Let's read what God says in verses 11 through 12. What does it say there? Can someone read that? So we see, <clears throat> thank you, we see that the Lord is expressed, what the Lord is expressing to Israel is all that he's done for that nation, and yet they still rebel. <clears throat> and this is a display of, their, of God's patience and long-suffering towards them. Now on the other hand, so again, first, we ought to feel frustrated, right? You guys keep doing the same thing. But on the other hand, we ought to feel convicted by this, right? And the reality is that all of us continuously sin against the Lord and need his mercy daily. A little story, and you might smile as I say this story. Um, just recently, after my son was born, uh, I went through a situation with one of my teeth. Yeah. It was the top left molar that had cracked, and I had an exposed nerve that was causing the most intense pain that I've ever experienced in my life the worst thing ever. I just wanted to die. Um, and it wouldn't go away. <clears throat> I remember staying up all night, pacing in my kitchen after losing much sleep the night before because you know we, we have to get up every couple of hours to feed. Uh, and I don't like to leave her alone feeding, so I'll get up with her. And, uh, but I lost sleep, and that's okay. But the following day, I had this pain because I cracked my tooth. And it wouldn't go away. I was pacing in my kitchen, not knowing what to do about the pain. I took pain pills. I took my wife's pain pills. Um, and I even visited the ER in the middle of the night. Nothing they did alleviated the pain. I'll never forget how bad that pain was. Um, I remember telling my family, look, you guys just go upstairs, go into your room. I'll be down here. Bye, have a good night. And when they went up there and they closed the door, I just shriveled in the bed. I mean, I shriveled in the couch, like in so much pain. And I, I didn't want them to have to worry about it. But it was so much pain that I, I didn't know what to do. And the thing about teeth is that the pain, um, for, for some reason, the nerves are connected to everything else in your face. And so my tooth hurt, but so did my eyes, and so did my nose, and so did half of my face. Um, so it was all over my face, that pain. I thought I was going to lose my mind. I remember praying to the Lord, asking him to clear the pain, yet the pain would not go away. I began to confess all kinds of sins to God, like, God, I remember when uh, all this stuff, you know. And I felt like Martin Luther. You guys know Martin Luther's testimony when he almost gets struck by lightning. Uh, and he tells the Lord, I'll become a monk if you spare me. Um, and for me, at that point, I told the Lord, I would consecrate myself even more to serving you uh, and, and be even more careful to live according to your commands if you just alleviate this pain. And this is real. I was really saying this. Uh, and finally, even though I've lost so much sleep, I persevered and was able to have my, den my dentist extract the tooth the following morning. Praise, praise be to God. I feel like singing a hymn <laughs> right now. 
Um, although I would never want to relive that again, I can see how the Lord <clears throat> can use such an experience to draw me closer to Him. But here's the issue, right? It's only been a few days since the incident, and I have already found myself on my knees needing the Lord's mercy again, right? Asking the Lord to forgive me for other sins again. So it was this, this moment when I said, Lord, I'm going to give my all to you if you just relieve this pain. And it's only been a couple of days, and I've already sinned against the Lord in so many different ways, in my heart, in my mind. And, and I said, man, I, I thought from that point on, I was going to live clean, and I was going to, you know, serve the Lord, and I don't know. Um, and I, I still have found myself on my knees asking the Lord for forgiveness every day. In other words, I'm just like Israel just like Israel. And again, this is where we ought to uh, feel convicted when we see Israel fall again. Because from, from afar, when we look at it in history and we read the book of Judges, we're like, wow, uh, they keep doing the same thing. We, 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 we know it's a cycle. We make charts and we say this is cycle number one, cycle number two, and we think it's sort of ridiculous. But the reality is, um, if, if they wrote a book on us, uh, we'd be known for uh, being or creating these cycles also, just like Israel. And so we are just like Israel. I'm just like Israel. And I hope that you would analyze yourselves today and see that you too are in the same boat. We read uh, of Israel's failure, of Israel committing idolatry, and, and uh, in so many ways we do the same. Um, so we, we ought to feel convicted and allow that to point out just God's mercy on Israel as a nation and, of course, us as individuals. Anyway, we read on in verses 7 through 9 that God punishes Israel, right? He punishes them. He gives them over to the Philistines again. He gives them over to the Ammonites. The Ammonites, check this out, they not only stomped Israel through Gilead, but even made forays west of the Jordan against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. In verse 9, if you read verse 9, it says that Israel was severely distressed. In other words, God was tired, and he really crushed them. Now it's interesting in verse 10, Israel not only cries out to the Lord at this point, sort of like me with the tooth, <clears throat> but they also uh, include some sort of confession of sin, similar to me on the floor in, in my living room. It says Judges 10 through 14, it says, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. And therefore, what does he say? I will save you no more. Go he says to Israel, go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And this is convicting because when I think about my idolatry and the things that I do and the things that I depend on for my hope and my satisfaction, it's almost as if I'm serving these other gods. And the moment of distress, I'm calling out to the true God. And God can easily tell us, hey, you find satisfaction in all these things? What, sports? Hey, let, let that football team save you in your time of distress. Or 
all the you know all all the ways that we commit idolatry. Let your favorite TV show save you in the time of distress, or let whatever you whatever you set your affections on more than me. Let that save you. How about that? And that's what God says here. He says, you know what? I'm not going to save you. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress, since you love them so much. Now, for, for many Christians, this verse seems very cruel. It's like, God, why would you do this? Maybe you're thinking, if Israel is crying out to God, even confessing their sin, why is God not even saving them? But this is the problem with many who profess to be Christians today. Their theology of God is misinformed. It assumes, or they assume, that God is incredibly naive. Right? As if God owes them grace. Here's a quote from a commentator on Judges regarding the confused understanding of God's character. He says, For many professing Christians, God is like a great warm vending machine in the sky in which you need only to drop a token or two of repentance before he spits out relief of your current, uh, relief of where you currently crave or, or your current situation. Now, is God a vending machine to you? Is that what he is to Israel at this situation? So Israel's repeated cycle of idolatry is evidence that they have grown accustomed to God's grace. I can't count how many times people have given me the surprise look when I tell them about God's wrath. Many times I've been asked by unbelievers of my opinion of whether God is pleased with a certain political position or even a lifestyle of someone that they would point out and say, hey, what do you think about your coworker so-and-so? Do you think they're going to, think they're going to hell? Because they know I'm a Christian. They would say, hey, Will, you're in seminary, right? I'd say, yeah. They would say, what does God think about so-and-so? And their face goes into shock when I dare tell them that apart from the imputed righteousness that can only be attained through faith in Christ, so-and-so is under the fierce wrath of God. Now, I'm not excited to tell them these bad news, right? I don't just go around smiling and telling people the wrath of God is upon you. But when I do, they're shocked that that the God that they thought was a lovable and friendly and gracious God would ever be a God of consuming fire. I've seen even professing believers, right, be in complete surprise when they hear this. This ought to speak of the natural self-justifying tendencies of every human being. Every human being, even the nicest person you know, has sinned against the Lord repeatedly, and it ought not to be taken lightly. We should not be shocked by the fact that we ourselves, and everyone else for that matter, deserves eternity in hell. If there's anything that anyone in this planet ought to be surprised by, it ought to be the fact that God would give you or anyone else mercy. Why would he do that? That should shock you. Mercy? Not the wrath. The wrath you deserve, and you should know that. You should be shocked that God would save you. Yet in today's world, right, everyone apart from Christ is living as if they deserve his grace, as if it's owed to them. And for this reason, God will give them over to exactly what is owed to them. But praise be to God that he's covered us, right, with his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And that is um, something that we, we can't grow accustomed to. That is the grace of God in our lives. 
that uh, the righteousness of Christ has been applied to you. You're covered. It's over. The game is done. Uh, you, you, the wrath of God has been satisfied, and you can praise God for, for his mercy that, that he, he's had upon you. Now, in conclusion, we read uh, verses 14 through 16, when, when God says, Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And it says here, He became impatient over the misery of Israel. That last verse there stands out. He became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now we must be careful um, when we, when we read that verse to read it correctly. Uh, we see that verse 16 shows that the Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. This means that God became compassionate towards them. But this is not because they began to put away the foreign gods, right? Like what we see in verse 16, they put them away. He's not compassionate because they started putting away their idols, right? We must be careful not to assume that God's compassion for his people depended on them putting away their idols, or even the sincerity of their repentance, right? It simply states that God became impatient over their sufferings. In other words, Israel's hope, as well as our hope, depends not on our actions. It, it, the fact that God uh, placed his love upon us and decided to save us did not depend on us putting away our idols. That's not the case. God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he decided to have compassion over his people. Right? Israel's hope, as well as ours, depends not on our actions, but rather on the intensity of God's compassion. And this ought to leave us wondering, again, why would God ever set his love on rebellious people and have compassion over them? Right? It's a great mystery. It ought to be. But, it, it, but also, it, it's a great reason for us to worship the Lord and say, thank you, Lord. We have no good reason that we can come up with on why you would save us and why you saved Israel. Because of undeserving compassion, we are saved today. And I love what it, sells in, I love what it says in Romans 5, 8. Uh, it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, just the emphasis on while we were still sinners. Um, God didn't show love to us when we fixed our lives, but rather while we were still sinners. And of course we know. Then when he does regenerate our hearts, he does sanctify us. And we begin to see the proof by us putting away the idols, by us um, loving his word and following him and obeying his commands. But again, he, di he, didn't, re he, didn't, uh, he didn't respond when we started cleaning up our lives. No, he, he, um, he came and he, he gave us the grace while we were still sinners. Um, and for that, we, we ought to praise him for that. And so... We see the same pattern with God's compassion for Israel. In the midst of their failure, God still had compassion over them. And um, again, this is just another pointer to the gospel, another pointer to the pattern of how God saves his people. Uh, the grace depends on him, whether he wants to apply it or not. And we see that he graciously applies grace to them when he um, is compassionate over them. <clears throat> now, this, this concludes this section, this section for today. Um, we end with uh, God becoming impatient over the misery of Israel. We're kind of left at a cliffhanger, right? Will God save his people? 
Will he raise another judge to save them from their oppression? Or will he give them over to their destruction? You'll find out next week, same time, same place, same channel. Um, but any, any questions or any comments that anyone wants to share? Yeah, Jay, thanks, man. I, uh, I've been doing a study in Psalm 119, and throughout that whole psalm, David speaks um, to just that. Mm -hmm. uh, before I went astray, uh, I was afflicted. And, mm. and, and God just uses the things in our lives, whether it be a tooth, right. <laughs> whether it be a lack of a job, whether it be finances, whether it be, you know, bad environment type thing. And he uses all that stuff to bring us to him. Yeah. Um, David goes on to say, but now I keep your word. Mm. And, and, you know, sometimes we, we forget. And, 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 and I think even as Christians, we, we are quick to forget because we are saved by grace. Right. And then all of a sudden, things go awry and we just like fall apart. Right. And, and you know, that's the, that's the sad thing, is that yeah. we shouldn't. Um, right. Just like Israel, going through uh, all the troubles that it went through, it continually forgot God. Yeah. Nothing's changed. Right. We still do that today. Yeah. And yet, God's grace is so amazing. And that's the thing that, you know, he goes on to say with David, because of your faithfulness, you have afflicted. Right. And it is God's faithfulness. Amen. Uh, and not us. Yeah. And, you know, that's the, this study... Just so matches these, uh, these, these chapter of Judges. Great. That's great. Great. Yeah, that's great. It's, I mean, it's encouraging to know that all the trials that we're going through is a sign that God is pursuing us. He's preserving us. Um, and, yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. Anyone else? That's a good reminder. And it's comforting to know that in Christ we're not, when we feel afflicted, it's not a justification thing. It's not a, it's not a, man, did I mess up? You know, and it's just payback. You know, God has satisfied his wrath in Christ. But these things, like the scriptures say, are working for our good. And, um, you know, it, it, we may not see it, but they're gifts to us. Um, you know, we're not going to see it at that moment. But afterwards, just looking back at, the things that we go through, 
they are serving for sanctification. I mean, I, I, I honestly feel like that I feel closer to the Lord even after through the pain. Um, and it sounds silly because my wife just pushed the baby, and I'm, I'm, here, I'm here crying about a tooth. Um, but together, you know, the pain that we've gone through together, um, you know, we, we feel closer to the Lord, and the Lord uses these things to, to, to grow us. So, yeah. Anyone else? If not, I'll pray. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Don't uh, underestimate. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 It's a good observation. That's good. All right, y'all, I'm going to go ahead and pray. <clears throat> All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we uh, first want to thank you for your word. Uh, this passage in Judges has shown us the importance of godly leaders, first with Israel and even with your church today. Lord, we pray that you just, uh, that just as you raised up the judges in Israel, that you would continue to raise up men for the leading of your bride, the, the church that they would be a reflection of our great leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we also saw the compassion towards your, pe- uh, your compassion towards your people through these accounts. May we never get accustomed to your grace. May it always surprise us, knowing that what we should expect from you is well-deserved wrath. But because of your love, not depending on anything that we would ever do, you sent forth your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And to that we praise your name. Help us to live worthy of that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.